Hi, this is Rick Thompson, the pastor at Living Water Community Church. This is our podcast, and I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message builds your faith and blesses you. Please enjoy it. And that is the question of the day. Good morning, everybody. Are you glad you're in God's house today? A little cold out for you? But now that we've warmed ourselves up with worshiping the Lord, it's good to be with God's people. Amen? Before I I jump into my message today, I just want to give a shout out to my bride of 34 years. We're celebrating 34 years this weekend. Amen. And didn't she sound beautiful up here? I'm trying to encourage her to make that a regular thing. (laughs) Anyway, I want to welcome those who are here and those who are joining us online. We are in a series that we have been calling Twisted Scriptures. Twisted Scripture. And uh, not only asking the question, do all religions lead to God, which by now I hope we, we all know the answer to that. What's the answer to that? No. But also acknowledging the question that basically is, is Satan and his followers willing to twist scriptures in order to get people to follow him? And, and obviously, we, if, if he did it with Jesus, how many know he's going to do it with you too? Right? He's going to do it with you too. We saw that in Luke 4 and Matthew 4, and he will target us as well. Now, we have a, uh, a scripture that we've been using. It's been kind of like a theme scripture. Let's look over. The Apostle Paul dealt with the same thing in the early church in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12. He says, and I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered what? Equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people, he says, are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also, that if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, The end will be what their actions deserve. And so, so far in this series, we've we've tackled three uh, major religions out there who tend to twist the scriptures. Uh, The JWs, the Mormons, and the New Agers. The JWs, the Mormons, and the New Agers. But this morning, I'm kind of turning the corner to kind of spotlight, um, put the spotlight on, uh, 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 on one that's a little bit closer to home. They weren't on my original list. But after about the third or fourth time it was brought up, sometimes the Lord has to tell me things more than once. How many of you know that? Is that true of anybody else? About about the third time I said, okay, Lord. Somebody said, uh, Pastor Rick, why don't you teach on Seventh-day Adventists? And I was like, "Mm, Seventh-day Adventists? As far as I know, they're they're a Christian organization that worships on on Saturday. It'll be a short message. You guys will have to just go out to lunch, right? You know, end of the message. See you next week. But then it came up three or four times in the same week. And, and then I got this text from one of our members. And this is what it says. This is the actual text. It's on your screen. It says, good afternoon, Pastor Rick. Hope all is well. I've been watching the series, and it's right on time for me, as I have a coworker who, who is friends with me but has mentioned to me that we worship a false god if we don't worship on Saturday. Because Saturday is the true Sabbath, and that worship and that worshiping on Sunday was a man-made change that became tradition. She says that it's in, it, she says that it's all in the Word, but doesn't seem to believe in the New Covenant. I have been looking up some different scriptures and trying to find things on on the New Covenant and so forth. Uh, 
to argue my case, would you happen to have some scripture that I could refer to? By the way, she is what? Seventh-day Adventist. Seventh-day Adventist. And so I responded to her. I said, well, you tell her that we worship God the Father and the Messiah Jesus. Who does her church worship? That sounds like her own personal beliefs. The Seventh-day Adventists, as far as I know, don't believe that or teach that. They aren't considered a cult, but a sect of Christianity as they believe most of the same things we believe. And then I gave her some scriptures concerning the Sabbath that I'm going to give you today. But right about, again, the third or fourth time they came up, I said, okay, Lord, let me do a study on the Seventh-day Adventists. Now, when I did that, I, listen, Pastor Rick was surprised because I've actually never actually focused on them. They believe most of the same things, but not all. And oftentimes they get caught up on what we would call legalism. I'll touch on that. They have dietary restrictions, and as far as they're concerned, you have to worship God on Saturday or else sort of thing. So let's kind of unpack the Seventh-day Adventists. Let's get a little history on them, first of all. Modern-day Seventh-day Adventists trace their origin back to the 1800s to this guy, Mr. William Miller of Lowhampton, New York. Now, who was he? He, he had converted from deism, deism, someone say deism. Deism is basically a belief that, that they believe in a God, but he's not a personal God. He's a God that kind of set the universe in motion and then kind of like a set it and forget it God. He's, he's not involved in the day-to-day lives, as opposed to Christian, uh, Christians who believe in a personal Jesus, that he's interested. Jesus said, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Come on, somebody. That's a personal God, amen? And so he converted from deism to Christianity in 1816 and became a Baptist, and an avid reader dedicated to God's word and sought to reconcile the apparent biblical difficulties raised by the deists at the time. So he's studying. And as he's studying and studying, he starts to focus on the imminent return of Jesus, thus the name Advent, Seventh-day Adventist. Advent means the return of Jesus. He starts to focus on that and preach on that. He starts preaching at the age of 50, and the time was right in America. It was hot with discussions on the return of Christ. And as a result, many thousands of people started to follow him. Matter of fact, they started to call the followers of, of Miller, Millerites, Millerites. But he made the cardinal error like so many cults of his, of his day, of his time. You know what he did? Uh, Pastor Steve knows because we talked about it. He decided that he, that he would predict when Jesus would return in, 18, in 1843. So he gives this date to his thousands of followers, notwithstanding what the Bible says and what Jesus himself said about his return. Let's remind ourselves, I mean, if you're a big study of the word, you should have at least give a passing glance to this scripture when Jesus is talking about the end times. This is what he says in Matthew 24, verse 36. He says, however, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. Verse 37, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. 
That, Jesus speaking, that is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. People will be eating and drinking and marrying and partying, and then the Son of Man's coming, and those who are in Christ will be in Christ, and those who are just like in those days, those who are in the ark were saved, and those who are outside were lost. But he said, no one knows the time except the Father, not even the Son at the time. Nevertheless, Mr. Miller thought he had it figured out. And so, and, and, and so he told his followers, and they accepted his ideas when Jesus would return. 1843, between 1843 and 1844. And he arrived at this date upon studying the scriptures. At least he didn't get some, you know, some angel told him. He, he was looking at the Bible, and, and in Daniel chapter 8, speaking of the last days, verse 12, this is where he gets it from. He says, because of wickedness, this is what the Bible says, the host was given over to it together with the regular burnt offering. It cast truth to the ground and kept prospering in what it did. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one that spoke, How long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled? And he answered him. Again, he's talking about, we talked about the, the Antichrist and when he's going to come on the scene. He says, and he answered him, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Then it goes on to say, which he clearly didn't read, verse 27. So I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick some days. Now understand, Daniel has this vision, and it, he was overcome by it, and he lay sick for several days. Then he arose and went about the king's business. But I was dismayed by the vision, and what does he say? And did not understand it. And so the person who got the vision, the prophet Daniel himself, admitted that he didn't understand <laughs> what was coming his way. But Miller claimed he did and convinced an awful lot of people as well. So he interpreted the 2,300 evenings and mornings to be years, counted forward from 457 B.C. Uh, when, the, when the commandment to rebuild the Jerusalem was given in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. And he came up with a date certain of Christ's return. And of course, that day came, and that day went, and Jesus didn't return. And when his initial predictions failed, you think he would just say, you know, let me just call it a day. No, he adjusted his findings to conclude that Jesus would return on a different date, March 21st, 1844, and then put that out there, and then that didn't happen. And then later on, October 22nd, 1844, and after those fell, William Miller finally quit promoting this idea that Jesus was going to return, and the Millerites, those who followed him, broke up. But not to be, uh, you know, upstanded or anything like that, one of his uh, followers, one of the people who followed him, they said in the morning following, what they called was a great disappointment because you had all these thousands of people now you know, waiting, Jesus is coming on this day, and then the day didn't come, and the day came and left, and he didn't come. And then he predicted, predicted another day, and the day came, and, he, and it left, and he didn't come. And then the third time it happened, well, this guy, after the great disappointment on October 22nd, next day, 1844, this guy claims, Hiram Etson, claimed to have seen a vision, and he said that he saw Jesus standing at the altar of heaven and concluded that William Miller had been right about the time, but wrong about the place. 
In other words, Jesus' return was not to the earth, but a move into the heavenly sanctuary as it referenced in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, which, by the way, would be invisible to the human eye. How convenient was that? Jesus returned on those dates, <laughs> but it was to some heavenly sanctuary. So he got it right. And then this guy picked up on what he said, Mr. Joseph Bates, a retired sea captain and a convert to Millerism, picked up on the idea and began to promote the idea of Jesus moving into this heavenly sanctuary on that day, published a pamphlet which, was, which, which greatly influenced these last two people, which are the founders of the Seventh-day Adventists, James and Ellen White. She was considered to be a prophetess who also claimed to have visions of the Lord. And it's these three who were the driving force behind the movement of the Seventh-day Adventists. So now this, the church is born, and its history has this controversial, as a controversial organization because the founding prophetess, um, they, they, they taught that, you know, that they got this revelation that the proper day for worship was to be on Saturday. We'll tackle that this morning. But they also had other controversial teachings. Jesus, they said, is, a, is the archangel Michael. Where have we heard that before? That was from one of the other cults. And then they said, ultimately, she said, ultimately, Satan, not Jesus, will bear our sins. Uh, there's a problem here. They also taught that when a person dies, he simply, he simply ceases to exist, and hell is not eternal. They emphasized dietary laws, again, which we consider to be legalistic, and they teach that you can lose your salvation. Okay, there's a lot of Christian, Christian ones that will teach that as well. We'll tackle that. Um, but because of these things, many people over the years have considered them uh, a cult, not just a sect, but depending on who you talk to. But let's tackle that, what they teach, versus what, let's say, we teach or mainline Christianity teaches, okay? And so like the, they emphasize, the first, your, your first fill-in is they emphasize dietary laws and restrictions. You, uh, just like the Jews, no pigs, they are uh, no rabbits, no shellfish. You, you've got to adhere to these things like the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, again, bordering on legalism. But what does the Bible say? The Bible teaches, I want you to write this down, that we are not subject to Jewish dietary laws or restrictions. We are not subject to Jew Jewish dietary laws or restrictions. Where do we find that? 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, it says, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. What do they do? They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from, what does it say? Certain foods which God created to be received with what? Thanksgiving. With thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is what? Good. Come on, somebody. Anybody like a little... You know, <laughs> a little pork chops here and there. And, and, you know, I mean, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Uh, little salmon, little shellfish, come on. I mean, I'm not a big shellfish person, but I mean, if you want to eat it, go ahead and eat it. He said he created it for, for everything was created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with what? 
with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. prayer. And so what is this verse basically tackling? Well, it's tackling those who would take dietary restrictions as a form of piousness or godliness. And they will exchange that for the grace of God. In other words, they deny the power and and they have you going through rules and regulations as opposed to depending on the grace of God. It, 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 It has a form of godliness, but it denies the power thereof. And it borders on works and the law. Now, Mark chapter 7, verse 14, again, Jesus called the crowd to him, to him, and he said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And after he had left the crowd and entered the, the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you, and, he, and he said, Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out their body. And then it goes on to say, in saying this, Jesus declared what? All foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and greed and malice and deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. And so what, what is Jesus saying? He's saying it's not an issue of food at all because during the, the, the Jews at the time were, were what I call majoring on the minors. They were telling people that unless you, you know, are ceremonial clean, unless you eat the right things, you are not in proper relationship with the Lord. And Jesus comes along and says, listen, Nothing you put in your mouth is going to defile you. Not one thing. Because, it's not, because it goes in the mouth, it goes in the stomach, it goes through the small and large intestines, and then it gets eliminated. All right? He said, that doesn't defile you. He said, you want to know what defiles you? It's the stuff that comes out of your heart that defiles you. And then he breaks it down. The evil thoughts, the the sexual immorality, the theft, the murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Folks, it's not a food issue. It's a heart issue. And Jesus came along to tell us it's always been a heart issue. Amen? That's why we have to surrender our hearts to the Lord. Because it's only by his Holy Spirit that we can have our hearts cleansed. Amen? They go on to say that hell is not eternal. That a person just ceases to exist. Again, a lot of the other cults got their teachings out of this early church as well. What the Bible says, hell is eternal. Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus speaking. Then they will go away to, help me out somebody. Eternal what? Punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. What does eternal mean? It's not that complicated. It means forever. And so Jesus is talking about two types of people, goats and sheep. And, 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 and he says that the sheep, 
those who follow the, uh, of goats, those who do their own thing, are going to go into eternal punishment, forever punishment. And those who follow after him, the sheep, will go into eternal life. Folks, there is a heaven to gain and a hell to miss. Notwithstanding what people don't ever want to talk about hell anymore, pastors don't talk about hell. Why? Jesus talked about hell. And if it helps people make a decision to follow him, to God be the glory. Amen? Luke 16, 19. And 31, we don't, it's not up there, but Jesus gave a whole parable about a rich man and Lazarus. And it spoke of a man who went to hell. And I believe it's a literal story of a, that Jesus is describing of a man who literally went to hell. And you know what he had, had going on while he was there? All his senses. He could feel the fire. He could see what was going on. He, he, he asked them to put put some water so he can, you know, uh, taste the water on his lips. All the senses that we have here today was tracking with this man who Jesus said was an eternal torment in hell. Speaking of the end times in Revelation 14, 9, it says, Then a third angel followed them, shouting, Anyone who worships the beast, anyone who worships the beast and his statue, or, or who accepts his mark, on the forehead or the hand. Remember what that mark the Bible talks about? Six, six, six. This is what the Bible says. And that's why it's important to know what it says. Because the Bible says there is coming a time when there's going to be a one world government and you're not going to be able to buy or to sell. And we're moving away from, from the cash system to a digital system. And I don't know if you noticed that, but it seems like we're moving away already. But he says in the last days, who accepts the mark on the forehead or the hand, because the Bible says you won't be able to buy or to sell unless you get this mark, says in verse 10, must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. And it goes on to say the smoke of their torment will rise. Help me out, somebody. Forever and ever. And they will have no relief day or night. For they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. Folks, is, is hell eternal? That's what the scripture says. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. Consequently, they also teach that Jesus is Michael, the archangel. Again, we heard this before. What does the Bible say? Jesus is God, God incarnate. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, speaks of Jesus. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom all also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for our sins, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in, in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The Bible makes it clear that he's not just an angel. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, 
the Word already existed. The Word was with God. Help me out, somebody. And the Word was God. It was, it's the JWs that add that the Word was a God, and they make it a little g. In John 1.14, so the Word became human and, became his, and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and, un, and, and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Help me out. Who is the, the, the Father's one and only Son? Not, not that complicated, right? The Word became, in the beginning was the Word, the Word, beca- the, the word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He's not just an angel. Now let's tackle the big one now. They say we should be worshiping on the Sabbath, period. And as you saw in the text, at least that lady thinks everyone who worships God on a different day is worshiping a false god. That means all all the Protestants are worshiping a false god because they are worshiping on a Sunday rather than a Saturday. Now, where did they get that from? Again, they go all the way back to the Old Testament. That's why we consider it a legalism thing, um, where in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, nor your male or your female servant, nor your animals, nor any uh, foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so they'll point to that scripture and others And they'll say it was the custom of the Jews to come together on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, and cease work and worship God. And then they'll point to the fact that Jesus went to the synagogue on on Saturday to teach. We see that in Matthew 12 and in John 18. So did the apostle uh, uh, Paul in Acts 17 and 18 and 40. He would go to the the temple to tell them about Jesus. And so they conclude that if if the Old Testament, if in the Old Testament we're commanded to keep, keep the Sabbath, and in the New Testament, we see Jews and Jesus and the apostles doing the same thing. Then why do we worship on Sunday? Someone say, good, good question. I'm, I'm so glad you asked. Here are some reasons. The Bible says, and Jesus actually said this. I want you to write this down. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He said that in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people, to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. And then he went on to say, so the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Now he said this in response to the Pharisees who were following him and constantly accusing him of breaking the laws of the Sabbath. So Jesus himself was constantly being accused of breaking the laws of the Sabbath. If he was here today, he'd be accused by the Seventh-day Adventists. <laughs> okay? But he was accused of breaking the laws of the Sabbath. Now, in this case, in that scripture, he and his followers were walking through a grain field and picking and eating the grain on the Sabbath day. And so they accused him. In other places, they were accusing him of when he would heal people on the Sabbath, they accused him of breaking the laws of the Sabbath on the Sabbath. Well, 
Jesus reiterates for us that the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of man. In other words, we should rest. Not man made to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. In other words, God established the Sabbath as a rest for his people, not because God needed a rest. How many know that God doesn't get tired? He doesn't get tired. He established it because we're mortal and we need times of rest to focus on. How many of you are tired just from losing that one hour of sleep? Come on, somebody. I know I am, right? And, and basically he's telling you, do not, you are not designed to go seven days a week. You are designed to take time to rest or you will burn out. You and I will burn out. And the Old Testament system of law required them to keep the Sabbath as part of their overall moral, legal, and sacrificial system by which the Jewish people satisfied God's requirements of behavior and the government and forgiveness of sin. But then Jesus comes along and he, and he's a, he makes an atonement for all of mankind. He is the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And so when he made that commitment, remember what he said? It is finished. He said, we are no longer required to keep the law as a means of justification, as a means of, 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 of because the average Jew is trying to be a good, a good Jew. They're trying to work their way to heaven. Jesus became the fulfillment of the law. Matter of fact, I want you to take a look at this about three-minute clip, and then we'll get back to our discussion. Does God require Sabbath-keeping of Christians? We're going to answer that question. The Apostle Paul declares, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. These scriptures make it clear that for the Christian, Sabbath keeping is a matter of spiritual freedom, not a command from God. In the early chapters of the book of Acts, the first Christians were predominantly Jews. When Gentiles began to receive salvation through Jesus Christ, the Jewish Christians had a dilemma. What aspects of the Mosaic law and Jewish tradition should Gentile Christians be instructed to obey? The apostles met and discussed the issue in the Jerusalem council. The decision was, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who were turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. It is inconceivable that the apostles would neglect to include Sabbath keeping if it was God's command for Christians to observe the Sabbath day. A common error in the Sabbath keeping debate is the concept that the Sabbath was the day of worship. That is not what the Sabbath command was. Yes, Jews in Old Testament, New Testament, and modern times use Saturday as the day of worship, but that is not the essence of the Sabbath command. The Sabbath command was to do no work on the Sabbath day. When did the early Christians meet? Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. If there was a day that Christians met regularly, it was the first day of the week, our Sunday not the Sabbath day, our Saturday. 
In honor of Christ's resurrection on Sunday, the early Christians observed Sunday not as the Christian Sabbath, but as a day to especially worship Jesus Christ. Is there anything wrong with worshiping on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath? Absolutely not. We should worship God every day, not just on Saturday or Sunday. Many churches today have services on both Saturday and Sunday. A main point to remember is this. Whether or not a believer feels led to practice Sabbath rest or to engage in corporate worship on a particular day, he should remain respectful of those who do not share his conviction and not be a stumbling block to others. There is freedom in Christ. That answers the question, does God require Sabbath keeping of Christians? And the church said? Amen. Amen. So I want you to write this down. So we are free to worship any day and every day if we choose. Any day and every day. What is the Lord's day? Uh, we're going to look at the scripture where he says, I, John, was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, he's refer- referencing the day the Lord rose, but every day is the Lord's day. Come on, somebody. Monday is the Lord's day, and Tuesday is the Lord's day, and Wednesday. Every, every, God created every day. And so every day we have the freedom to worship the Lord. Now, Romans 14, 5 through 6, in the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. Those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to do what? To honor him. And those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. Colossians 2.16. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies, or what? Or Sabbaths. For these rules are only, what's the word? Shadows of the reality to come. These are only shadows of the reality to come. And what's the reality? And Christ himself is that reality. Come on, somebody. You didn't didn't hear what I heard. Nobody... So he goes on to say, don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ and the head of the church or the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments and grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world So why do you keep on following the rules of this world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate after we use them. These rules may seem wise because they they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Because Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. This is all outside stuff. Don't don't handle, don't don't touch, don't don't eat. All this stuff, it looks good, all right? And it requires discipline. I'm not going to have, you know, my my chocolate cake today. I'm going to skip a meal this time. And and, and it seems pious, but it doesn't 
touch what's really going on in your heart. Jesus said, it's a heart issue that we need to deal with, not a food issue. Amen? Amen. And then he says, I want you to notice the sequence here. He says, the time sequence in Colossians 2.16 says, a festival is yearly, a new moon is monthly, and a Sabbath is weekly. And so he says, no one is to judge you in regard to any of those things. The Sabbath is defined, he says, as a shadow of the reality of, uh, that is to come. And then, so that we don't have to guess what that shadow of the reality of what's to come is, he tells us what it is. He says, Jesus is that reality. Jesus, and what was he saying when he said that? He's basically saying that Jesus, I want you to write this down, became our Sabbath day rest. In other words, the law taught that we have to do X, Y, and Z. And if you really want to follow the laws, don't just stop at the Ten Commandments. The Jews have something like over 630 commandments that they're they're trying to follow in order to be justified before the Father. Well, the Bible says that there was one man who came on this planet who fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law, amen? And, it, and, then, he, and then he went to the cross and paid the penalty, and, he, and in paying the penalty, he said, it is finished. And so within that, it is finished. In the blood of Jesus was all the righteous requirements of the Lord. The do not touch, do not taste, the keeping of the Sabbath. He, 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 from that moment on, he, Jesus became our Sabbath day rest. Amen. And we can worship Jesus seven days a week, <laughs> or any day we want to. Amen? Amen? So that's, again, that's someone, that's why I said that they, they are leaning toward legalism, and legalism will never get you to where you need to be before the Father. It's only by grace that we are saved through faith. Amen? And this not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. So Jesus is our Sabbath. All the righteous requirements of, of the Old Testament law were fulfilled in him. And guess what, folks? We are in him. Amen? Amen. And so the early church, when you write this down, met on different days to worship. Acts 2.46, you saw it in the video. They worshiped together at the temple. What does that say? Help me somebody. What does it say? Each day. Each day. day, They worshiped at the temple. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. And they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who are being saved. I love that. Because there are churches who meet on Sunday. There are churches who meet on Saturday. There are churches who meet on Friday. (laughs) You know, and, and people are getting saved. Because it's all God's day. Again, is there any evidence in the New Testament that Christians met on Sunday? And that's the crux of it. And I'm going to give you some evidence. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. uh, Paul's visit to Troas. It says, on the first day of the week, we gathered with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. What's the first day of the week? Who thinks it's Saturday? Don't put your hands up. The first day of the week is Sunday. Not only did they meet, they took the Lord's Supper on it. Paul was preaching to them, 
And since he was leaving the next day, he kept talking until midnight. Aren't you glad that, that I'm not going to keep you here till midnight? The upstairs room, I'm just going to, it's only about 2 o'clock. I'm going to be going on. No, I'm just playing. The upstairs room where we met was lighted with many flickering lamps. Watch this. As Paul spoke on and on, a young man named Eutychus, sitting on the windowsill, became very drowsy. And finally, he fell, he fell sound asleep and dropped three stories out the window to his death below. While listening to Paul preach, I don't want to hear any more complaints. I get you out of here within 45 minutes to an hour. This man just went on and on and on, and that poor kid couldn't take it, closed his eyes, and fell to his death. That's what the Bible says. Paul, watch this, went down, bent over him, and took him into his arms, and presumably prayed for him. And this is what he said. Don't worry, he said. He's alive. <laughs> Come on, somebody. Amen. Then they all went back upstairs, shared in the Lord's Supper, and ate together. And you think he would have ended the meeting at that point. <laughs> Paul continued to talk <laughs> to them until dawn. And then he left. It reminded me of when I went to preach in Jamaica. I had a nice little sermon prepared it was about 45 minutes, right? And then I was done, and they were like, wait, you can't be done. Because in Jamaica, they go to church. It's an all-day thing. You know, they walk there. Many of them walk there. They're going to hang out there for lunch, and they're going to go right into the evening service. And all I came with was a 45-minute message. And so I had to preach some more, okay? But if I did that here, I'd be emptying out the church. <laughs> Well, that was Paul's idea. He was preaching and preaching and preaching. The dude dropped, dropped dead out the window. And then he said, you know what? No trouble. <laughs> In the name of Jesus, get up. And the kid got up. Uh, hopefully he didn't go sit back in that window. But that did not deter Paul from preaching some more. Went back upstairs, shared the Lord's Supper, and he continued to talk until the morning. And then he left. Now, meanwhile, the young man was taken home alive and well, and everyone was greatly relieved. But I said that scripture to you just to point out the fact that all this happened not, uh, uh, not on a Saturday they had this meeting. They said it was the first day of the week. The first day of the week has always been Sunday. And this is the day they gathered, and they had two important functions within that time, the breaking of bread, which is communion, and a message, preaching and teaching. 1 Corinthians 16, 1. It says, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, or Galatea, so, so do so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper that no collections be made when I come. So again, notice here that he's directing the churches to meet on the first day of each week, which we said already was Sunday, and to set aside a sum of money, which 
we presumably is the tithe, and he, and he, he had them meet and set aside that money on a Sunday. Now, is this an official worship day set up by the church? Well, you decide. Does this, does this verse apply to Christians still today? Yes. yes, it does. It almost certainly does. And then finally, again, we talked about this already, but in Revelation, John the Revelator, he says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Again, what is the Lord's Day? It's Sunday. Why? Because it's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Whenever you hear the, the reference to the Lord's Day in the Scripture, they are talking about Sunday. Now, the Seventh-day Adventists, they have every right to worship on Sabbath, and, and they should if they're convinced that it's the right thing to do. However, if any member of any church will require, require a person to worship on Sabbath as a sign of what they call true Christianity or true redemption, they are wrong, flat out wrong, according to Romans 14, 1 through 12. Read it when you get a chance. Additionally, Sunday is the day that the Lord rose from the dead. Again, the Jewish people who had rejected Jesus continue to worship on Saturday, on Saturday the Sabbath, but it was the Christians who celebrated his resurrection, and this was, uh, was, this was probably the driving force to gather on the first day of the week. Now, let me just wrap this message up in a bow concerning the nonsense about Satan eventually bearing our sins, as taught by Ellen White, they're one of the founders, and that we have the ability to lose our salvation. The scripture is clear that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. First uh, Peter 2.24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He himself is returning, is, is referring to Jesus alone. Again, I don't know at what level they're saying that Satan takes you know, takes ownership of the sins, but that seems to directly contradict what the scripture says. And then concerning the losing of our salvation, my question is always this. If, if you never earned it in the first place, <laughs> I, I don't know what you have to do to lose it. You didn't earn it. it it's a, the Bible calls it a free gift from God, amen? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourself, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast. Now, if it was by works, then I can see you losing it. <laughs> I don't even see how you get it. But if, if, if it's by grace, I don't see how you lose it. If you didn't do anything to gain, it, so, so gain salvation, then you can't do anything to, to lose it. We believe like most, like many uh, Protestant churches, that once you're saved, you're always saved. The question is, are you truly saved? And there are people who have said a prayer, but have not actually given their, surrendered their hearts. How many know there's a difference between just saying a prayer and then actually surrendering your heart to Jesus? 
And so the, we believe that once you're truly saved, once you've given your heart to Jesus, then he, he's not an Indian giver. He doesn't take it back. <laughs> you know, uh, Jesus said, the scripture says, I've lost none of the ones that you put in my hands except the son of perdition who was destined to go into to hell. And, um, that would have been Judas. But God has a way of, of keeping that which belongs to him. Amen? And, and if you put your trust in Jesus for your salvation, you can be assured that, that, that you know, it's not... If, if, you, if you start this thing by grace and you walk by grace, when you finish this walk, race, or this life, it's only going to be by the grace of God. Amen? But if you allow teachings and heretics and people to pull you out of grace and pull you into the law or to works, yeah, you're going to get confused and you're going to, you know, you're always going to be questioning your salvation because you no longer put it on Jesus and him alone, but you put it on your righteous, pious acts. Don't touch, don't, don't, you know, whatever. You, you become a more of a law-based thing rather than a grace-based thing. And the Bible calls us to start in grace, to walk by God's grace, and to finish this walk by, by the grace of God. Does that make sense? Amen. And so, as we come to a close this morning, if you've not yet given, surrendered your, your heart to, to the Lord Jesus, it would be my privilege and my honor to just lead you in a prayer of trusting in him and him alone for, the, for your salvation. Um, let's everyone bow our heads and close our eyes and say something like this. Say, Heavenly Father, I acknowledge that I have sinned. Your word says all have sinned and fall short of the standards of God. And the wages of sin, what I deserve is death eternal separation from you. But your word also says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, and from this day forward, I repent of my sins and put my trust in my own works. And I put my trust completely in the finished work of Jesus, my Sabbath day rest. And I thank you for sending your son to die for me and three days later to rise from the dead. From this day forward, I surrender all to you. In Jesus' name. Now, if you said that prayer, especially if you're watching online, put it in the comments. I prayed to receive Jesus today with, with uh, Pastor Rick. If you're here today and, you, and this is your first time in your, in your pews, there's a let's get acquainted. Fill that out. I prayed to receive Jesus. I recommitted my life to Jesus today. And let that be your, your spiritual act of confession, letting the world know that I am not ashamed of Jesus in my life. Amen? Amen. Thank you so very much for listening to this message. We hope you were truly blessed. If you were, please subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already, and share it with a friend. 
Doing so will cause the seeds of God's word and the message of his love to spread like wildfire. So thanks again for partnering with us in this important way. Stay thirsty for Christ, my friends, until the whole world hears. God bless.